afternoon. My name is Karen Sampson Hoffman, and I'd like to welcome you to today's Ask the Expert webcast, Social and Emotional Concerns of Children with ADHD, ADHD Strategies to Help. Today we welcome Drs. Gina Richmond and Christy Phillips of the Child and Family Therapy Clinic of the Kennedy Krieger Institute, located near Baltimore, Maryland. The Ask the Expert webcast series is presented by the National Resource Center on ADHD, which gives the general public access to top clinicians, researchers, and other professionals. The National Resource Center is a partnership between CHAD and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and serves as the national clearinghouse for the latest evidence-based information on ADHD. A recording of today's broadcast will be available on the National Resource Center on ADHD's website, help4adhd.org, in about two days. To view the recording sooner, please follow the same link you used to join us today. The recording will be available about 30 minutes following our presentation. We may not be able to get to all of your questions today. If you would like to talk with a health information specialist for further information on today's topic, please contact us Monday through Friday, 1 to 5, at 1-800-233-4050 or online at www.help4adhd.org. Finally, following today's webinar, a brief survey will appear on your screen. Please, please take a couple of minutes to let us know what you think and how we can better serve the ADHD community through the Ask the Expert webinar series. It is a privilege to introduce today's guest experts, Dr. Gina Richmond and Dr. Christy Phillips. Gina Richmond, PhD, is the director of the Child and Family Therapy Clinic of the Kennedy Krieger Institute. She is a clinical psychologist with experience in family therapy. To treat families, children, and adolescents with behavioral concerns, she uses a range of therapeutic modalities, including structural, strategic systems, and cognitive behavioral approaches. Dr. Richmond utilizes an evidence-based approach to her clinical work and in her supervision of trainees in her clinic. Christy Phillips, PsyD is currently the co-director of clinical services for the Child and Family Therapy Clinic at the Kennedy Kriegers. Pardon me, at the Kennedy Krieger Institute's Columbia, Maryland location. She also teaches a graduate course in couples and family therapy at the Johns Hopkins University School of Education. For those of you who would like to ask Dr. Richmond and Dr. Phillips a question following their presentation, written questions can be submitted in the questions box on your GoToWebcast toolbar as indicated by the red arrow shown in this slide. All questions are moderated and we will get to as many as possible during the Q&A portion of the webinar. Again, we are very pleased to welcome today's guest experts, Dr. Richmond and Dr. Phillips. If you would like to begin, please. Thank you, Karen. We really appreciate the invitation and I'm um, very happy to start our presentation. So th the goals of our um, webcast here are going to be to provide an understanding of the symptom presentation of ADHD, then to review the impact of these symptoms on behavioral and emotional functioning in children with ADHD, further to discuss the impact of behavioral and emotional concerns on relationships including parental, sibling, and peer relationships, and then to discuss strategies to enhance healthy relationships. Next slide, please. So I want to start a, with what is attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. We'll start with inattentive behaviors 
which can include poor memory, these children having difficulty attending to detail, problems organizing tasks and materials, they're easily distracted and forgetful, and they tend to avoid um, or dislike tasks that require sustained attention. The hyperactivity, impulsivity behaviors include fidgetiness, difficulty staying seated, high levels of physical activity during inappropriate times, perhaps talking excessively, difficulty waiting their turn, and interrupting or intruding on discussions. Next slide, please. So what we have to remember is, you know, no two kids are alike. And we want to remember that when we're, we're talking about ADHD children. And um, what I want to talk about are thinking skills and behavioral skills. And um, the thinking skills are things like working memory, ability to hold on to information in their memory while completing tasks, um, planning, including uh, creating a roadmap and deciding what is important to focus on. Uh, organization, keeping track of what needs to be completed to successfully finish a task. Time management, estimating the time requirement to get the task done, including maybe creating a schedule. And then metacognition, how am I doing? Um, Self-monitoring, how did I do on this? Uh, behavioral skills, inhibition, thinking before acting, example, uh, managing disappointment or anxiety without disrupting your performance or allowing your emotions to impact your decisions. Emotional control, sustained attention, paying attention without being distracted. Task initiation, ability to begin a task independently. Goal directed. That's persistence and having a goal and following through, and then flexibility. Um, making changes to your original plan and incorporating new information. Um, don't quit. Overcome obstacles um, to your plan. These are all um, incorporated in the book Smart But Scattered, who um, describe this very, very eloquently. And um, I, I refer people to that, to that book. It's wonderful. Um, okay. Now, when kids come in for treatment, typically there are, more, uh, there are comorbid concerns. So there are many reasons why children with ADHD are referred for treatment. And for most of these kids, the comorbid concerns are emotional dysregulation, anxiety, depression, learning difficulties, social skills deficits, and family relation difficulties. So when a child comes to us with ADHD, it's typically because of one of these reasons, and that's what we are treating. Okay, now I'd like to introduce Dr. Christy Phillips, who will be discussing the impact of ADHD on relationships. Christy? Thanks, Dr. Richmond. So we wanted to touch base on um, the impact of ADHD symptoms on relationships because it's really important to understand that children who experience um, concerns with their relationships growing up oftentimes experience concerns with their relationships as adults. Therefore, over the next few slides, we'd like to evaluate the impact of common symptoms of ADHD on relationships. First, inattention and difficulties in executive functioning can impact how children interact with others. For instance, 
An inattentive child might have difficulty learning appropriate social skills and behaviors when interacting with and watching how others communicate and behave. Also, they might not be able to recognize facial expressions which provide clues as to how others are responding or feeling in a certain situation. And in part, this could be due to the child not fully attending to the interaction. During play, children might jump from one activity to another due to difficulties sustaining attention on one activity for an extended amount of time. Play may also be unbalanced where a child with ADHD could monopolize the activity and not let his or her peers take a turn. Also, hyperactivity can have a significant impact on relationships. So hyperactive children can also have difficulty with turn-taking during play and while communicating with others. For instance, this can be observed in situations where a child interrupts a conversation or an activity. Also, hyperactive children may briefly participate in an activity due to the need to fidget and move around. This fidgetiness can also be interpreted by others as if the child is acting aggressively while participating in the activity. Symptoms of ADHD can also lead to children struggling with transitions, especially from something that is enjoyable for them to something that is less enjoyable. Because a lot of times these tasks require increased sustained attention, task initiation, and goal-directed persistence like Dr. Richmond mentioned. This can lead to increased frustration in parents and teachers. Also, hyperactive behaviors in the classroom can result in negative perceptions among peers, and it could lead to problems building relationships with a hyperactive child, especially if kids feel that this child is being reprimanded or um, given a lot of different redirection or reminders by a teacher. Children who experience difficulties controlling impulses can also experience difficulties in their relationships. For example, due to the child not being able to manage impulses, he or she might unintentionally insult a peer or act without considering the outcome of what they're doing. During social interactions, an impulsive child could also disregard social space or boundaries where they might stand too close to others or hug others at inappropriate times. They might also have difficulty compromising or taking another's perspective when making choices, which can lead to more arguments. And impulsive children can also have problems with turn-taking and holding back thoughts. Many children with ADHD have difficulty stopping and thinking about the outcome of their behaviors. Um, therefore, it, it, they tend to um, respond without considering what could happen. And as the child gets older and academic demands increase, oftentimes difficulties with executive functioning tend to become increasingly evident. So these difficulties can impact a parent or teacher's perspective of the child and lead to increased struggles with day-to-day -day task completion in the classroom and at home. And these increased difficulties often come at a time when the expectation is for the child to function more independently. Although it's important to remember that the child may need a more comprehensive system of support. This will often include supports at home and in school where teachers and parents will need to work together to fully support the child. For children who are struggling with increased demands and decreased success, 
as Dr. Richmond mentioned earlier, they may also experience higher levels of anxiety and depression as compared to their peers. And a lot of times this is due to the child with ADHD feeling as though they are unsuccessful and incapable of having good grades or good relationships. These children might begin to show declines in academic success and more concerning behaviors in school. They might also become increasingly resistant to completing homework and tasks at home. Impulsivity can also increase a child's risk of misusing social media or technology, meaning a child might impulsively create a social media account or leave inappropriate comments on social media sites. And this can further isolate a child from his or her peers, um, as, as some of the peers might feel or might have a negative perception of the child due to the comments that are left or made. As a result, um, the child's impulsivity and lack of emotional regulation can lead to a reliance on the use of poor coping strategies such as anger or aggression. And oftentimes when a child acts aggressively or in an angry way towards peers, it elicits a negative response from their peers as well. Now Dr. Richmond will be talking about the ADHD, uh, the impact of ADHD on the parent and child and sibling relationships. Okay, thank you, Christy. Oh, thanks for changing that slide. Okay, so kids with ADHD can show a lower than desired compliance with uh, rules, family values, and have difficulty learning from consequences. So the parent might feel frustrated, especially if there are siblings who are able to do these things successfully. And they may feel that the child's behavior is purposeful and disrespectful. So this could further impact the relationship and negative feelings toward the child when you look at the comparison between the HG child and the non-ADHD sibling. So important considerations. You know, what are you trying to teach and why? In other words, can you convey the importance of these rules and make them meaningful to, uh, to the child so that by following them, they are more likely to get what they want? You're, you're striving for eventual independence and for them to follow these family values. And we have to um, work on the um, alignment of the understanding of what those values are and by you know, accommodating that, that the child is more likely to get their needs met. So how can you support their strengths in, in making this happen and what can you do to create new strengths while understanding areas of weakness? So in other words, if if we keep trying to get things from these kids that they can't do, it's going to make it a very futile situation for both the parent and the child. Next slide. So when you're working with ch children with ADHD you know, and parents, you're going to continue uh, to evolve and change and renegotiate rules. So you want to manage the eventual quest for independence as the ADHD child gets older. Parents are learning to be flexible in the face of anxiety-provoking changes. For example, what happens when it's time for them to drive, have a job after school, what about electronics and cell phone use, free time, dating, friend selection. So it's a constant renegotiation of rules um, of the relationships over time, which entails assessing all the aspects of the situation from your perspective as well as your child with ADHD's perspective. When we talk about, next slide please, 
Thanks. When we talk about the relationship with the siblings, um, a lot of times these are frequent conflict-based interactions. Uh, there's feelings of resentment. The child dealing with ADHD symptoms, they could be resentful and many times are resentful of the sibling's ability to have more positive interaction with others and ability to stay out of trouble and, and make good decisions that get them um, better things than what they're getting from others, from their parents, from friends. The siblings of the child dealing with ADHD symptoms, um, the attention the ADHD symptom receives and the disruption they cause to the family can really negatively impact how they feel about their brother or sister. Also, the misunderstanding of the child with ADHD's intention. We, we talk about that a lot. You know, is their intention really to be that disruptive or do they just not know better strategies and this is their go-to? So important considerations when you're thinking about uh, working with an ADHD child or have one is how close in age are the children? Are you mindful that the rules are consistent or are you making accommodations for the child with ADHD? And what are those accommodations? How are they impacting that child and the siblings? And do you have an understanding of the relationship they want with each other? A lot of times uh, they want to have better relationships and just don't know how to manage those. And those are a lot of things we deal with in therapy with these children and their siblings. So next slide. So before you can help, the parent needs to ask themselves, what type of parent am I? Where did my parenting style come from? You know, with this child, am I over-involved in micromanaging? Am I caring but lack effective follow-through? Am I afraid to confront the child because of the, of the consequence to me and my family if I do confront the problem? Tough love, do I feel like the child needs to learn hard lessons in life? Am I permissive yet punitive? Do I expect too much, impose harsh consequences? And then I have inconsistent follow-through. And then we have to talk about parents who disagree. Uh, there's difficulties with agreement between parents and their parenting styles. And you know, we all know that a, a child goes to one parent for one thing, and if they don't get it, they go to the other parent. So it's really important, certainly, for parents to have an agreed-upon style. And we'll turn this back to Christy. Thank you. So when we are thinking about um, effective parents, it's important to recognize that overall authoritative and democratic parents tend to have the most success. They view themselves as teachers of skills that set their children up for the future. And they tend to get input from their child when making decisions um, by modeling respect through their language and their behaviors. They give their child a reasonable chance at solving problems on their own before offering assistance and collaborating on a solution. They also try to communicate in a way that is not blameful and negative, and they tend to be very open-minded. Lastly, they're willing to set reasonable consequences and work towards contracting in order to reinforce success. And contracting in this case includes setting specific expectations and reinforcing success when those expectations are met. In the next few slides, we'll further discuss ways to increase positive parenting practices and relationships. So to improve behaviors at home, it's really important to consider current rules and structure that are in place. And when you're creating rules, it can be helpful to have a family meeting where parents can establish 
and decide on in advance if there is an exception to a rule and establish consequences for rule violations. If a parent decides on an exception or consequence in the moment, emotions can impact parenting and a child might not fully understand how to follow the rule in the future. Therefore, it's really important to discuss these exceptions and consequences when establishing the rules. Also, to increase structure in the home, create a daily routine with your child. Write the routine down and post it so that it's always available. Remember, your child will need reminders to complete it, especially when it is first established. Continue to reward for following the routine and be consistent with that reinforcement. And involve your child in the process by having them create the chart with you and set rewards to increase motivation of its use. All in all, enforcement, reinforcement, and consistency are key when you're establishing rules and structure. Some areas that call for rules, um, I'm sorry, some areas that you want to consider when you're creating rules for your child are things such as curfew, where your child can and cannot go, whom your child can spend time with, when you will contact a friend's parents, acceptable use of electronics, risky behaviors, people, places, and situations that are considered off-limits, and illegal activities such as drug and alcohol use. To improve peer relationships, social skills groups or activities can allow children to learn and practice skills with same-aged peers. This can be done formally in school or through therapy. Schools will often establish lunch bunches or formal social skills groups. Parents can also access social skills groups through local therapists or clinics. Building social skills can also be done informally by having your child participate in an extracurricular activity where he or she can learn and practice skills like sportsmanship, turn-taking, and cooperation. Parents can also host a play date and provide feedback on observed social, action, social interactions after the play date has ended. Be mindful to share with your child observed strengths in addition to areas where he or she can build their skills. Additionally, perspective taking is important in positive relationships. And you can help your child practice this skill by having him or her identify facial expressions and body language in others. Also, have your child interpret what that person might be thinking or feeling based on this information. For impulsivity, teach your child how to stop and think before engaging in a behavior or interaction. And this means supporting your child and not acting on an impulse, rather helping him or her consider the possible outcomes before deciding on how to respond or react in a situation. And parents can consider the following principles from Smart But Scattered while working to improve executive functioning skills in their children. Do not assume that your child is not using their skills and allow them to show their ability um, at, at using their skills before doing things for them. This will help each parent fully understand where their child's skill, skill level is and where they need to continue to build their skills over time. Keep in mind, too, that children with ADHD will need more practice. Also make sure you embrace your child's desire for independence uh, by allowing them to practice their skills without your support um, and make sure that you gauge any risks that could happen prior to allowing them to do this. 
Also, help your child move from more external to internal motivation. And this means that a child internalizes the skills that they have and can independently use them rather than needing your prompts to use them. And this will be a gradual process over time. Additionally, when working with your child, make sure that you provide comments that are positive to increase motivation and follow through. Understand your child's needs based on their developmental level and be mindful that this might differ from their chronological age. And lastly, provide just enough support for your child to be successful and to allow for increased independence. And keep support in place until you see mastery where you can then gradually pull back. And now Dr. Richmond is going to continue. Thank you, Dr. Phillips. So continuing on, working with your older child to get buy-in for change. Be prepared to negotiate. You know, as your child gets older, their opinion is important. And you want to understand what, is, what their goal is with what they want, as well as them understanding what you feel is in their best interest. So be prepared to negotiate and convey helpful intentions. Intentions are really important with older kids so that they don't see it as just as a command, but they see it as something that you feel is in their best interest to get them to meet their goals. Focus on the goal of increasing future independence with tasks. This means empowering them to take initiative with making good decisions and choices with less of your influence and opinion and more of theirs. You always want to clarify the rationale behind addressing problems. So it becomes more of a collaborative process where they can come to you as more of a, a mentor or somebody that can help them versus somebody that's adversarial that, that is not looking in the same direction as they are. Communication is, is ridiculously important here. The do's I'll start with. State the issue clearly. Make sure you're taking turns with your child or adolescent. Note the pros and cons of any decision they are considering and calmly disagree. Be concise and direct. Don't lecture. You'll lose their attention and their interest. Pay attention to what they are saying and talk in a normal tone. Say what you feel and accept responsibility using respectful language. On the contrary, don't insult. You don't want to interrupt or use criticism or defensiveness. Lecturing is not a way to go with this. You're going to, you're going to lose their attention after a while. Um, avoid distractions. When you want to have a conversation with your ADHD adolescent, make sure it's a time when the two of you can just spend together or, or the three of you or whoever's discussing this in a private, quiet area. Avoid star sarcasm and stonewalling and yelling and swearing will always get in the way of effective communication. Do's and don'ts. So continuing on, next slide. Listen attentively. Don't interrupt. Clarify what you hear and reflect on what you hear and then summarize. Speaking, speak attentively. You want to ask meaningful questions and don't overspeak. Sometimes it's good to accept silence. Don't keep asking them for answers. Let them think about it. That's what you're trying to teach them, not to be impulsive, but to think about what they want 
Um, and, and so accept that that might not happen right away. Avoid cross-examining. So when giving uh, effective directions to your ADHD adolescent, make sure you mean it. Don't be wishy-washy and show conviction. They'll understand you better. Do not express your direction or expectation as a favor or a question, but as a must-do. And do not give them too many directions at once. Focus on what your child should be doing. Do not focus on what they should not be doing. And avoid competing distractions when giving directions. I know a lot of these seem like, well, yeah, that's logical, that makes sense, but it's, it's amazing how often we don't do these things and we let other things get in the way. So the use of outside experts. Experts can help with problem solving and relationship enhancement. They can serve as a third ear who has no emotional connection but objective professionalism who is willing to hear both sides. Sometimes that's really, really important. Address roadblocks to your relationship with your child, and they can provide with more nuanced feedback on skills and deficit issues. Next slide. So to just wrap things up, I wanted to give you some recommended readings and references that we find really useful to give to parents when they come to see us. So I think that wraps it up for us. Karen? All right. Well, thank you very much. This has been very informative, and we have questions coming in. I'd like to remind our listeners and our, our audience today that if you do have questions, please put them in the questions box, and you, they will come to us. And we are accepting questions now. And our first question actually comes from Katie. And her first one I'm going to answer for her. Yes, you can download the slides. They are available underneath resources on the left by your question box screen. They're also available online on the Chad, I'm sorry, on the National Resource Center's webpage on our listing. You can download the slides there. And again, our webpage is www.help4adhd.org. And now for you doctors, Katie was wondering, what do you mean when you say that it's important that a parent's parenting style should match their child's personality? You know, parenting style and matching child's personality, or is it parenting style should match between the parents? The parent, yeah. So I, I think that was uh, something I discussed. I was talking more about the parenting styles. Um, parents need to come to agreement about how they want to parent before the child's approached. In other words, uh, you don't want one parent saying yes and another parent saying no and a, one parent being in agreement with what the child's doing and the other parent being opposed to it. So we always talk to the parents first before we deal with any of the child issues about their parenting style and how they want to approach this situation. So that when the child becomes involved, as we say, the parents are on the same page. And whatever the child's hearing from one parent, they're hearing from the other parents, so they're hearing a consistent message. Does that answer the question? I think it does answer the question. It is important that children have a consistent message, and that actually leads us to our next question. Uh, one of our listeners was wondering, um, she says that these have been really good strategies that you've offered that she thinks she can do at home. But she was wondering, how can she and how can other parents keep those routines going 
at school or in other locations, places where the parents aren't present. Again, going back to consistency, how can these routines be at home, at school, at activities, and so forth? Well, that's, that's a really good question, and that's, that's always a, a challenge. So a lot of parents um, that we work with, we, we incorporate, and parents can do this certainly without a counselor on their own, a school note system where there's communication between the school and the home, perhaps like a daily uh, short report card. Um, you know, did the, did the child complete their schoolwork today? Did they stay in their seat? You know, they can report on the, the good things that the child's doing and if there's any issues, and then there can be consequences at home, both positive and, you know, collective. So it's really, really nice if the child doesn't have an IEP or a 504 plan, um, because if they do have that, then a lot of that is sometimes incorporated with the parent and child, uh, the parent and teacher. But if one of those isn't in place, um, a lot of teachers, if you if you talk to them, um, will very be, be very much in agreement with working with the parent to communicate about the child's behavior during the day. Now, in other situations, like if the child um, is in a soccer practice or um, in any kind of extracurricular activities, you know, asking the coach to give the parents some feedback on how the child interacted with other kids that day. Um, you, you'd be surprised at how many people are so willing to help these kids who are struggling um, be successful. And we, uh, we have found that um, to be very helpful when we just ask. Wonderful. Well, Connor has a question to follow that up with. And the multimodal approach, which includes behavior management and medication if, if appropriate, Connor was wondering, do you know if ADHD medications have a factor on behavior? Is this something that is helpful? Uh, I would say um, the majority of our children um, have a combination of um, a psychopharmacological uh, approach to treatment. Um, I mean, a pharmacological approach and a behavioral approach to treatment. So most of the kids that we have in our fa uh, child and family therapy clinic are, in fact, on a medication regimen. And we have found that the combination of treatment and medication proves to be very, very helpful and, and really aids in the success of the child. So yes, the majority of our kids um, are on medication for ADHD. All right. Well, again, that's, that's part of the multimodal treatment plan, okay. which is, again, the education, behavior management, and medication when appropriate. Yes. Well, yep. well our, our next question now is coming from Susan. And she has a 13-year-old son who's in middle school. And she was wondering if you had any suggestions that when a child is resisting joining social groups or social activities, how to kind of encourage those interactions so he's not left alone or not left lonely. Well, I think in a lot of um, in a lot of ways, when we're looking to increase social interactions, and there could be some reasons as to why a child might not want to participate in an activity, it's important to discuss that with your child in order to be able to understand fully um, what his or her reservations are. And one way that you can increase the likelihood of them participating in an activity that is um, 
to, to practice more social skills and, and be able to have social interactions is to get them involved in something that is really enjoyable to them, that is motivating to them. So if he or she is interested in a certain group or a certain activity, help them get involved in an activity that's going to be right along those lines. Yeah, and to add to that, um, what we find is that um, parents so much want these adolescents to be joiners. We all do. And um, it's, it's very frustrating when these kids don't want to join groups. But I think what Christy was saying was really important. Um, seek out things that the child is really interested in doing because they're probably activities with kids that probably are more like him or at least have the same interests. So, so there's some familiarity with kids on that level. And it's, it's very intimidating to, to join a group when you don't feel like you have anything to add or the kids will be so much different than you are. So um, a lot of times we say, you know, try a lot of different kinds of things until you find one that they're going to like or suggest things. Ask them to go and look around at a, um, you know, at a drama class or a, a, a soccer practice or whatever it is. But a, a lot of these kids... Um, have very idiosyncratic tastes, and they're not going to join just any group that a, that a parent suggests. So it, it's a lot of um, trial and error, we find. All right. Well, a lot of parenting is some trial and error and what works best for your child and your family. And we have our next question now from Dora, and she's got two kids. And she was wondering if you had any suggestions for activities for her kids to, that they could do together. Now, I'm not sure how old her children are, but she says part of the problem is they are fighting all the time. So there is some conflict, what you were describing earlier, among children, siblings, where one has ADHD and one doesn't, that there is some, some conflict. What would you suggest for these two kids? Well, I, I'm sorry, do both kids have ADHD or just one of the siblings has ADHD? Dory didn't tell us that, so I think it is that one sibling has ADHD oh, and the other does not. Okay, and they're fighting all the time. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, it's, um, I would wonder what, in what situations are they fighting? Are they, you know, fighting over the same uh, toys? Are they fighting over the video game receiver? Um, when I would set things up, I would try to make it more of a cooperative, like you two can do this, but here are the rules. And if you come to get me because you're not getting along, you're telling me that I've got to stop this activity. And a lot of times when you tell the kids, once I get involved, it's over, the kids will actually try to work things out more themselves because they don't really want to stop the activity. You know, they just want you to come and referee. But when they learn that they have to be their own referee, sometimes they'll work to manage the situation. So if they both want to watch TV and then they start fighting over the station, but if they come and tell you the TV's gone so nobody wins, they'll learn to negotiate. Well, I'll watch for a half an hour and then you watch. Or I'll have, the re, you know, I'll have the, um, this particular action figure and then you get it. They'll learn to, to negotiate that because they know that once they tell the parent, the deal is off. And, and we found that to be really effective for them to work out some of their own battles and for the parent to tell them the rules before they start. 
Like these are these are the rules. You guys can play, but if I get involved and there's a fight, I'm taking all of it away. Yeah, and I would agree with what Gina was saying there too as far as the idea of getting the children involved in a cooperative activity instead of a competitive activity. Oftentimes if they're working on something together rather than competing against each other, they're going to um, work on um, you know, really trying to come to a solution to whatever it is. Uh, and also, if it is something where they are fighting over most everything, then much like you would do fading on helping a child learn a skill or complete a task, you could do the same thing by you know, being present and making sure that they do know how to interact with each other during this cooperative activity and then gradually pulling your presence away so that they can practice that skill without you. All right, I think those are really good suggestions. Very often kids do get into fights and squabbles, and having some of those suggestions that you've offered really helps the parent and the children be empowered to resolve that on their own. Our next question comes from a listener who has a, a question. She just heard me use the phrase multimodal treatment plan. And she's not familiar with what that means. Could either of you give a very brief description of what the multimodal treatment plan is? So a multimodal treatment plan is, is taking into account there are a lot of different professionals that can help with a child with ADHD. Um, so seeing a, a psychologist, um, um, seeing a psychiatrist for medication or your pediatrician, um, a lot of these um, um, kids have coaches. So they're... Um, um, they're coaches for their, um, you know, uh, um, executive functioning coaches, they're called. And they help with homework. They help to organize them after school on what needs to be done and how to do it. So you've got a lot of different people working with a lot of different areas that affect the child's, you know, life. So the medication, the, um, um, you know, the behavior therapy and the family therapy, can come from um, you know a therapist, a psychologist, and then you know um, somebody who coaches can actually help with um, some some of the executive functioning difficulties. So that's why they're saying multimodal because it you know as they say it takes a village and not one person can do everything, but you you have a lot of different people working with the child at any one time. Thank you. I think that was very helpful for our audience. Uh, very often we again we say multimodal very quickly as a shorthand. I think that was very helpful for them to understand what is involved in that. Let well, our next add one, let me just yes. add one thing to that if I can, Karen. It sounded really overwhelming even as I was saying it. Wow, how many people and wow, do I have the time for all this? And and the thing is is that as things get better, these things can taper off. Do you know what I mean? So you know, as parents get some of these strategies under their belts and they can manage it more at home, it will lessen um, how often they have to go to therapy. And once they get good strategies going, you know, the coaching can be reduced. And once they get on good medication, then they see, you know, maybe the pediatrician and psychologist once a month, once every couple of months. So I don't, I want to, you know, put out there that I don't want people to feel just, oh my gosh, this is going to be overwhelming because I think what you're dealing with if you don't have this is overwhelming. This will, be, this will make it much more manageable in the long run. Okay. And that's the goal, is to make this manageable for the long yeah. run. Absolutely. 
Well, our next question is coming from Cora. And she was wondering, going back to making things manageable, if you had any strategies to help manage impulsivity in teens, especially when it's a behavior that uh, teens have already gone through and received consequences for. It seems that her child is acting very impulsively and has been told this is a bad behavior, this is a bad choice, and yet continues to do this. What would your strategies be to help manage some of that impulsivity? Well, I think some of it is, you know, what is their opportunity to continue to make bad decisions? And I think when I have an adolescent that does that, my, my strategy is to lessen the amount of control they have over making decisions until they can do it properly. So it's just reducing the amount of decision making they have. So if they continue to make bad decisions, then I have the parents make more decisions for them and curtail that. Um, so if you're um, uh, you know, telling them, well, they can uh, you know, use the computer, but you don't want them going on specific websites, and they continue to do that, then you can curtail their use of the computer or the cell phone. Or if they're mismanaging their time after school, then you curtail the t amount of time they are out after school. And I know a lot of adolescents are going to fight back on this, so to speak, and you know, I, you know, that's unfair. And you know, we always talk about, well, we're just going by what you're giving us here. And if you want us to be different, then you have to be different. So we're willing to give you, you know, more freedom, but you have to show us that you're going to use that in the right way. And that's why it's constant negotiating and renegotiating because you could say, oh, you know, I'm going to allow you to do X, Y, and Z. They don't make a good decision. You've got to pull back and say, well, your behavior showed me that I gave a little bit too much too fast, so I'm going to reduce that. And then when you show me you know, evidence that you can do this in a better way, I will give it back. So you know, it's, it's allowing them to know that they're in control of this. And you're you know, sort of the gatekeeper that's going to keep it from getting worse that you're going to have to pull back when they show you that they can't make good decisions. And, and if I could, just to add to what Gina was just mentioning, we're also considering, too, how well this child is able to problem solve. In a lot of situations where um, a child is acting impulsively, they're following through on you know, kind of the, the immediate thought as far as what they should do in a situation. And as I discussed earlier in the presentation, um, being able to kind of help your child stop and think and consider different outcomes and problem solve different resolutions um, can really be an important piece of the puzzle. So really helping them consider the advantages, advantages and disadvantages of each outcome that they could come to, whether it's a great outcome or a not so great outcome, and helping them figure out what steps they should take, um, as, as Gina just mentioned, to get to what they want. All right. Well, one of the questions, kind of following on that and following on some of the things you've, you mentioned earlier, one of our listeners was wondering, what would you suggest, how can she go about finding a therapist for extra help for her family and for her child? What should a person look for when taking that step for professional help? Wow, that is an excellent question. It really is. Um, I would certainly look for somebody that has expertise with children with ADHD, um, uh, somebody that you know used ev that uses evidence-based treatment, 
in their practice and that has you know, right an expertise using you know uh, behavioral strategies and uh, family therapy strategies when working with ADHD children and you know um, has um, uh, the ability to um, incorporate uh, you know a psychiatrist and these other you know coaches it, it's some of these agencies have all of this in house and it's really nice when that therapist can then refer to a psychiatrist or refer to a coach have all of these you know, um, uh, people available um, when um, the child comes in for treatment if and when necessary. So I would just, you know, look up people, um, professionals that have expertise working with children with ADHD. And not everybody has that expertise. Well, Kathy has a follow-up question for you on that. And she has heard of cognitive behavior training, and she's interested in that for her family, for her child. And she was wondering what credentials, what training um, should she look for in a specialist who does cognitive behavior training? You know, that's a really tricky question because there are a lot of people out there that say they have a cognitive behavior training. and um, and aren't really um, certified in doing that, and so it's just, you know don't be afraid to call places and ask specific questions. Um, we have people calling here all the time. What is your training? You know what 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 is your expertise? Um, where did you get your training? Um, it, you know, be an informed consumer, in other words, because a lot of people out there will say that they do a lot of things, and then. And you go and and you're not getting the services that uh, that you desire. So before you make an appointment, uh, call, call and ask, ask questions. If if they want you to come in, they'll they'll talk to you on the phone and they'll they'll tell you what they got to offer. And I would very much encourage anybody going to a therapist to do that. Be an informed consumer. And it is important to be an informed consumer. And that's something that here at the National Resource Center on ADHD we have said to many callers that before making the appointment, kind of give a, a little interview on the telephone. Ask about a specialist training. Ask about their education. It, it's very important, and it certainly saves a lot of headaches in the long run. Well, our next question now is coming from Valerie. And she was wondering, when a child won't follow through on a task or an assignment, what initiatives can a person take, can a parent take, to help that child without getting frustrated at that child? So perhaps this is the classic, go clean your bedroom, and yet the bedroom's not clean. What can a parent do to kind of prompt the child along, help the child out without becoming frustrated that she hasn't cleaned her bedroom yet again? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And I think one of the, the most important things that a parent can do is really start off by providing a lot of supervision in a situation and then pulling back on that, on that supervision. Um, we call it fading from 
from the beginning. And um, what you would do, and, and I'll use the example of cleaning your room as you just mentioned, is the idea that you are there with your child, helping your child clean the room up front, um, letting him or her see just what needs to be done and where things need to go. This goes on the shelf, this goes in the hamper, this goes in the drawer. Um, and then as, as you see mastery in that situation over time where your child is able to uh, do that with your support, then what you'll do is kind of fade that support back where you can then maybe watch from the doorway and give supervision and point out different things if your child misses something along the way while you're also providing um, really great praise and positive reinforcement of what they're doing so they know to continue that behavior. And then as you see mastery at, at different times, being able to pull back even more so, so that your child can go and do that task of cleaning their room um, independently and then coming to have you check on what, what they've done. But importantly too is making sure that they know what clean your room means. So really breaking down the task so they know that that means Everything has um, you know, a different place that it goes into and exactly you know, what those specific places are. Yeah, and I would just piggyback on that um, and, and don't change that uh, requirement when you see the room and then you see something else. But on the other hand, if the child is clearly just not doing it, then you know, there would be just a, a consequence for not following the instruction. There's something different um, to be said about the child that does it halfway, and then the parent can you know reinforce that effort, but say these are the three things on the list that you didn't do, do those, and then it's complete. So is it the child that's just non-compliant not doing it, or is it the child that's doing some of it but not all of it? So those those are two different issues. Does that make sense? I think that does make sense. I think that's very helpful. And uh, we're down to our last two questions, actually. And our second to the last question is coming from Tanya. And I think it kind of follows up on what you have been talking about. Tanya has a two-year-old son who is incessantly driven. This is a very active little boy. But he only participates with family and in activities with either coaxing or some bribing. And she was wondering if you have any ideas on how to get him to participate in family activities on his, on his own. And uh, forgive me, I said that uh, his son, her son was two. I misread my own handwriting. Her son is seven years old. So we have a seven-year-old who's very busy, but not busy with the family. So how can we entice him to become more, participate more with his family? Well, I'm glad, Karen, you changed the age on that because I was getting a little nervous <laughs> as I was sitting here <laughs> trying to figure out what to do with a two-year-old. Um, so a seven-year-old that's very busy but doesn't want to engage, it seems to me that he finds more interest in doing what he's doing than what the family's doing. So I'm wondering how to make what the family's doing more interesting for him, maybe, or making a requirement that, you know, we want you to be part of the family. So um, what kinds of things could we do that would be interesting for you um, so that you would want to do those things with us? Um, and or do a you know um, a, a sort of a quid pro quo. You do this with us, and then we'll do something enjoyable for you. Um, a lot of those kids, you know, she's saying he's very active. Um, you know, perhaps the family's doing activities that are not um, exciting or, 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 or more activity based for him or active based. So I would just look to see what it is that you want him to do with the family. Is it something in his wheelhouse? 
that he's really capable of doing or you ask him for something that for him is pretty impossible. All right. Well, and then we're going to follow this up with the uh, other end of this, from a seven-year-old to a child who's in middle school. And this is a question from Mel. And she says she has a son who resents follow being followed up with when there's missing schoolwork or missing assignments. Doesn't like that follow-up. And she was wondering how can she get how can she transfer responsibility to him, and help him see that. The homework gets done, the schoolwork gets done, and if it doesn't, then it hurts his grades. How can she encourage him to take responsibility without having his mother or a teacher follow up and say, where's the schoolwork, where's the assignment? Well, he sounds pretty much like every 12-year-old that we see in our clinic. And um, I'm not sure, you know, I always say to parents, you know, it's so unfortunate that kids don't have an adult brain. Because if they had the adult brain, they would think just like we do. Wow, this is important. I'm going to need this to, you know, um, to pass my class and to succeed and do all these things. But unfortunately, 12-year-olds don't think that way. So we have to kind of scoot them along in a way that they'll understand. And the, the only thing that they seem to understand is um, how not doing it will affect their life in a really positive way by not allowing them to do the things that are important to them. So in other words, when we have a 12-year-old that doesn't do their homework, well, you're going to need to do this before you're going to do that other thing that's really important to you because that's one of the rules in our house of being a 12-year-old, that you need to do this. So don't, I, I, I ask parents, get past the fact that it's not important to him right now because that's not the issue. The issue is, is that the work isn't being done and it needs to be done and how are we going to get him to get the work done? And it's not by making it important to him, but it might be by taking away something that is important to him. I think that might be a, a good approach. And like you said, uh, it's very typical of 12-year-olds and 13-year-olds. Well, I think we have come to the end of our questions for today. And I would like to thank you for being with us. I think our audiences have found have a better understanding of the symptoms of ADHD and how it's affecting children, how it's affecting their relationship with their families and their siblings. I think this has been a very good session for us today, and I want to thank you for being with us. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us. We really enjoyed this. Thank you. It's been our pleasure. And for our audience, our next Ask the Expert session is coming up. It is this Monday, January 26th. And we will welcome author Dr. Jerome Schultz. And he's for what to know, say, and do, helping parents and kids understand the social and emotional aspects of ADHD. Dr. Schultz is going to take us in a different direction. He will discuss the importance of kids knowing more about ADHD and how it affects them and how they can be better self-advocates. You can register now at help4adhd.org. And you can also register at chad.org slash asktheexpert for this informative webcast. I'd like to thank you again, Drs. Richmond and Phillips, for being with us. I'd like to thank our audience for being with us today. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. This has been a presentation of the National Resource Center on ADHD. We are a program of CHAD. Thank you very much and have a good day. <laughs>